I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. You this week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Rosie Wolfenden, MBE, and Harriet Vine, MBE, founders of Tatty Divine. I had the complete pleasure of spending an early morning chatting with them in their incredibly cool Brick Lane studio. I arrived just as their shop was opening and managed to catch a glimpse of their fantastic graffiti artwork sprayed onto their metal shutters, which was a painting of their famous European necklace which we ended up talking about later in the podcast. They were everything I'd hoped for and more. Colourful, utterly creative and so much girl power. They shared so many fascinating stories, inspiration and advice from their 20 years in business, including their experience of being a startup before the internet was actually invented, how they dealt with being copied by the high street and how they stayed true to their brand. Their energy and enthusiasm just shone through and they're the ultimate example of two founders being so happy building a business, doing exactly what they love. But their founder relationship, their love for one another was the most inspirational and it made me a little emotional. So apologies in advance for the tears at the end. Thank you, Rosie and Harriet. I hope you all so enjoy. Hi Rosie, hi Harriet. So lovely to finally meet you both. I've been a huge fan of your business now for years. In fact, I went a bit mad in your Brick Lane shop recently and I'm wearing one of your purchases today, a huge colourful parrot. And I get so many comments on it, but it's one of the many pieces I bought on my slightly, um, I'm only going to buy one and end up (laughs) buying four pieces. Uh, I bought the Smash the Stereotypes hammer necklace, which is now my favourite necklace to wear, especially in boardrooms, which is, (laughs) I get a nice little look and the eyebrow always goes up. Um, And it's such a mild stone year for you both as your business has turned 20 and I cannot wait to hear all about that later but first I'd love to start with both your stories where your business journey began because you attended Chelsea Art College which is where you both met was it love at first sight (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah so Rosie and I just became like in in totally entwined like some from like straight 
straight away almost at Chelsea when when Rosie moved into the flat I was living into in Brixton. Yeah, I was living with my sister, um, having come from the Isle of Wight, far, far away, not having anywhere to live, and our roof fell in, and I knew Harriet had a bit bit of a spare room at the back of her house, so I rang her up. I mean, I'm, you know, it takes a while to get to know people, doesn't it? Especially when you're 18 and quite shy. And... Um, and um, yeah, I rang Harriet up and said, can I, can I come and live with you? So we were living in Brixton in like a student digs house, which was horrible, to be quite frank. But it was cute at the same time. And it had a back room, which was not meant to be a bedroom because it had a boiler in it. So we just went out, found two pallets on the street and got a carbon dioxide detector. And um, that was a bedroom <laughs> now. So Rosie just stepped on a couple of pallets, contributed to the bills and we were happy. But we just, we'd get up every morning and, you know, go morning and we'd be wearing like similar outfits. We'd both be dressed as like sailors or channeling Bjork or doing, you know, we just suddenly clicked and had this sensibility that was very similar. And we'd go to college together, go to Chelsea on the King's Road. And we would just, I don't know, we did very different artwork. We had very different kind of, I don't know, aesthetics. We were in different groups at college. So like a lot of the day we were in different rooms and we were so into what we were doing. We were in, in our little rooms, but we'd come together again at the, in the bar at night. <laughs> Yeah, we were at college, you know, nine till six and then in the bar, six till 11. And then we'd cycle home, go and sleep, get dressed, come back. To, and we just loved it. We had amazing tutors. We met amazing people. There was a real sense at art college. I mean, there's only 30 people, but people from all walks of life. There was no sense of um, everyone was different, but everyone was the same. There was um, everyone was almost your differences created that bond. Yes, exactly. And we were just all just well we were so pleased to be there you know because it was because it's so yeah. it's such a prestigious place mm, to go to and yeah. it's like almost like I found my people <laughs> I, did my, I did my foundation at St Martin's and I didn't really enjoy that because I think you're really supposed to go to foundation near your house essentially whereas I was like I want to go to St Martin's that'll be the best place but I didn't like it because it was too big but when mm. I got to Chelsea it was like I'd come home yeah it's so small and nurturing it's, there's something very special about it actually and it's not on a campus it's, it's you know we, we were just 24-7 this group of people doing fine art sculpture and then there was combined media which was making moving artwork on VHS you or know because this is like in the jar. digital <laughs> which always makes me laugh because you just think I didn't know, how to, didn't know what to call it yeah. oh my goodness yeah. well it's like um you know how you find sometimes husbands and wives find themselves I interviewed Rob Ryan recently and he oh, met his that. and he met his wife and it's like you met you you met your other half didn't you yeah, at, at yeah, college yeah, yeah. for life so, your life partners uh, yeah absolutely so when Rosie moved in with me. I was working at the Victorian Abbott Museum in the cafe, um, which was like the dream job because you could eat dinner there. So you didn't have to buy any food for the rest of the week. So you'd eat as much as possible Saturday and Sunday and then live off gin and tonic for the rest of the time. <laughs> so Rosie got a job there with me and we would waitress and, and we were just kind of not exactly running the place, but it felt it like kind running of, the place. Yeah, I, I had hotelier parents and grandparents, and um, which actually is in my letter to self, but it shut down when I was about nine. But I was very much brought up on how to lay a correct table, you know, how to serve correctly, how to, you know, give the host. host and how to give the person the best experience possible. So when we got to the V&A, you know, I just had it in me. I was like, we need to make sure that everyone coming here gets the best experience they could possibly have. They were very lucky. They, they were, were very, very lucky. <laughs> very lucky. And what was art college like in the 90s? What type of projects were you working on? You could do whatever you want. It was amazing. In fact, it was completely daunting because up until that point, I'd always been like the one who was good at art. And you bet you'd have to do things like get an A-level, which involved projects and getting a mark and all that kind of stuff. Got to Chelsea, 
It was like, what do you want to do? And why do you want to do it? And how are you going to do it? No projects, no guidance, mm. just brilliant tutorials and lots of looking within yourself to what you actually were going to make as a human mm. being and why you should put something out into the world that doesn't exist yet. It was, it was amazing because our tutors were all very, um, you know, they were practising artists. They were winning the Turner Prize. They were sort of showing that, yeah, you can be an artist. That's a, a thing. It's a real thing. I mean, I think, you know, we talked a lot with other people about, you know, the lack of careers advice you get at school and the lack of careers advice steering people in, in the direction of the creative industries. You know, you don't know when you're at school that you can get a job as a running a business or making costumes for films or prop buying or, or creative direction games. or art direction my curious teacher at school just said to me you could be an art teacher that was as much yeah, as she pretty could much offer. all I got which you know would, be, would have been fantastic but actually to be an art teacher you need to be an artist so there we were with incredible tutors with each other I mean I spent three years just scratching my head wondering what to do and being very challenged by paint and I didn't actually paint anything even though I was on a painting course I just scratched into plastic and glass because I just and yeah because I just couldn't shadows. it was too much it was like choosing a colour was like the most ultimate decision to make and it was too much for me um, <laughs> which is ironic that we now like are surrounded by colour and colour is like the most important thing in my life yes. you know? yeah, probably why it was so difficult to choose I think so there was oh, yeah. so much pressure on it I did loads of work and it was only painted in pink so it was normal paintings but well, I always get really cross at college because you'd, I'd walk around college and go that's a boy's work that's a girl's work there was like a big piece of tree like highly polished on one side with car paint boy's work oh dress made of paper tissue paper with a fairy tale written on it girl's work and it used to piss me off so much so I just I read somewhere in some sort of feminist literature book for art that um that men paint uh, exteriors and women paint interiors so I just painted interiors in pink for like months because <laughs> it was what I was meant to do what you, know? you were meant to it was, do I was so Gosh. angry I was in but I didn't know how to express it mm. I didn't have the language and I'd mm. never come across any feminine any anything I didn't have any I didn't feel like I had any role models mm. or yeah. any powerful women apart you know the women I'd seen in my life were like Sam Fox and Princess Di you know it was like I, there You're wasn't right. there wasn't yeah. the community out there there wasn't a network and there wasn't the way you could find out information now how things have changed yeah. haven't they totally because there was no internet it was like yes. the lack of knowledge of, of what it was like that invisible woman thing where you just you don't really know realize why you're so angry but as a child I hated 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 tv because it always seemed to be so male you yeah. know it was always about men and films were always about men and sports always about men and I don't want to watch just men 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 yeah, unless you got to watch Benny Hill obviously which was a man chasing around women in negligees <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a wonderful place to study if you are passionate about creativity, which is yeah. what you both were. And I often think studying arts is not seen now as a viable option, especially to earn a living from. And I read from your recent collaboration with the Crafts Council that the number of students studying creative subjects has dropped 35% in the last 10 years. Yet, last year, the creative industries contributed over £100 billion into yeah. the British economy, more than ever before, which is crazy. And I know at some point it was basically our largest export, you know, or mm -hmm. is our largest mm -hmm. export. Yeah. As it's such an exciting time being an artist or a maker right now, due to there being... Basically, there's many more ways, isn't there, now we can get this out there. You yeah. know, the internet, websites, etc., etc., social media. We must champion creativity more than ever. 
But I want to go back to that. But before we do, let's just keep going with your journey. You guys graduated in the late 90s, pre-internet, mm-hmm. pre-social media, pre-online marketplaces. And the only option available to you back then was to have an actual physical market stall. And so that's what you did. And I saw you on Instagram recently, you posted your first receipt from renting a <laughs> stall at Camden Market for eight pounds, yes, eight pounds, <laughs> dated July 1999. What was that time like in your life? And what type of things were you selling back then? <laughs> So um, when we were at college, I was living on the Finchley Road and we found about 18 bin bags of leather samples out from an old upholsterer's shop, which we basically dragged into the flat and sat on until we dutifully finished our degree. Because we're always pulling stuff off the street. Yeah, yeah you're always looking like, for free stuff, basically. Yes, stuff yes. is free then. People yes. used to throw things away because there was no eBay, so you'd find all kinds of cool stuff because people just chucked it away. But so we found all this stuff. So it was basically like treasure. It was these like one foot by like 30 centimetre square pieces of every colour leather you could imagine. Books and books and books of it. And at the time, like Rosie and I were making our own clothes and kind of going out in ridiculous outfits. But we were wearing a bit of old belt round my wrist held together with a hair slide because it was the 90s. So obviously the 80s was really fashionable. <laughs> so we were sort of channeling our inner Morton Harkett with these wrist cuffs. So we cut up this leather into like three centimetre strips and we um, invented along with my dad a way of because we had no no terminology no findings no way of joining leather together no skills essentially but me and my dad sat and worked out a way of making an arrowhead also had a triangle on one end and a little slot on the other so we could get these leather things to stay on your wrist basically that's what we were selling it was five pounds for a narrow one ten pounds for a wide one and we sold, must have sold at least 10 because we made at least 50 pounds that day. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. We thought, let's just do a market store. Be great. And because um, we didn't want to get real jobs. That was the whole point of doing <laughs> yeah. everything we ever did was we're going to be artists. I never want to have a real job. And we left because we left college in what? June, June-ish. So it was pretty soon after leaving college. And um, we'd organised the end of term party together because there wasn't going to be a party. And we thought, this is insane oh yes there is there has to be a party (laughs) so we didn't just organize a party we organized a massive extraordinary exciting party and then yeah we just started making stuff together so we had an ironing board and a sewing machine and bags of material and we just started making stuff like upcycling and and then these leather cuffs and we thought well let's just go into a market stall and we did we made like 100 quid and then the next week we thought let's try portobello that's probably more our kind of scene and had to get up at like 5am, had a little mini, drove from Brixton over to Portobello, put my name down on a list because that's how it worked, went back to sleep in my mini and then um, you offered a, a pitch if there was was one going. We made like about £300. So Which is like, actually a lot of money. It was quite yeah, a lot of money. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. And we divvied it up so it was like, Harriet, here's £100, Rosie, here's £100, Tatty, here's £100 and we literally started with nothing because neither of us had any money we both had debt, not that much debt, but you know we had taken out. I mean, luckily loans. we got a grant. Not know, in today's college standards. Was free. Not by today's standards. A couple of thousand pounds in debt, had yep. an overdraft. Yeah. But we worked. We just worked and worked, and we literally started with zero, and we just it just started to pile up to, to grow. Mm. And you were always working towards, though, weren't you? Building a business, and that was the dream, wasn't it? To we quit did, those day jobs. Yeah, but had. we didn't know that's what we were doing. No, I know. Yeah. Yes, well, but like, probably in her, yeah. inside mm. of you was that you didn't want to have a normal job. Yeah. You did have 
part-time job or you were paying the bills yeah but actually inherently you what you now look back at was exactly what you were doing yeah yeah because I was invigilating at Camden Arts Centre and Rosie was working in a vintage shop on the King's Road so we had part-time jobs and we, I was getting housing benefit as well you know because you could then <laughs> yeah and we and we kind of went from like three days working to two days working and I remember going to my boss going can I just do one day a week and she's like Rosie just go away <laughs> she's like just go away and, and again the it. terms of flexible working <laughs> yeah. weren't out there well, at I the time like we as well we were paid in cash we were like paying our rent in cash <laughs> we were living in like a cash society yeah. it was easy but I love actually I know this sounds quite simple but I loved how you um a little sort of thing for anyone listening that you divided everything by three so there's two founders you didn't divide everything by two you divide everything by three which when you don't have sort of necessarily an excel spreadsheet about what all your costs were which I'm sure you didn't have absolutely not you just basically went for Rosie for Harriet for Tatty well a simple way of looking at it but always putting money aside to grow that dream yeah, we knew that the leather we had was going to run out at some point. Yeah, because it was free from the street. Yeah. the street. And we also knew that we wanted more exciting things. Like at the time, pony skin oh with zebra prints was really, really yeah. fashionable. We were, we were really lucky because where we were based in East London, you know, we didn't really know this. It was the home of all the leather shops. Yes. So like literally in the back of the flat we were living in, there's there was a leather shop that sold this pony skin, like kind of zebra print pony skin, which is, you know, where that really took us to the next level, which was getting into the Evening Standard, getting in Harvey Nichols was because we lived on Brick Lane and we could go to a shop near yeah. us and find mm. this zebra print skin. Yeah, because Google wasn't really, I mean, you, you know, it was dial up. It was a yeah. like a green computer screen. It was screen. another planet. It was like another planet. There wasn't much on it. It wasn't like you just Google it and find it. Um, but it was really, Harriet's right, the location was really important. Well, was, yeah, and you use your location. Mm. Yeah, it was around you, it was in your environment. But actually it was also like before I quit Steinberg and Tolkien where I was working, I'd been wearing something that we'd sort of customised on my head. It was a big gem encrusted hairband. And a woman came in and said, God, that's amazing. Where's that from? So that's when I was like, oh, my company makes them, which was a bit of a white lie because we didn't really have a company at that point. Um, and she said, oh, I'm from Vogue. Can you bring your collection along? And that, it kind of... Well, really... that was exactly my next question, which was this moment, this moment that you had someone literally walk in and talk to you and you told your little white lie, which led to the feature in the millennium edition of Vogue and not bad for young market traders, basically, no, right? Yeah. And so you left art college. Who knew that this was going to happen? Um, tell me the story about that whole thing, because as you said, you told the white lie, oh, it's from our business, <laughs> which it wasn't and, or was it? Well, you'd made it. We'd made it. So upcycling became a normal phrase and we understand what that means now. But when we were doing that, nobody really called it that you know so it was just we were just finding stuff in markets and jumble sales boot fairs and changing it so we'd we'd found all of these gems and rather than it being a belt we changed the we took took it from being a belt and put all these extra ribbons on it and then tight and it wore it around our heads or Rosie was having this on at work you know an event and we developed that further and further until we sewed it onto leather but at that time it was just all these ribbons and all these gems and it's kind of quite fabulous and um, fabulous for 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning or no, Friday morning. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, my goodness. I do Always love it. Always time for fabulous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But being, being at Steinberg and Tolkien, I just loved it. I love selling. I love meeting people. I love trying things on. I love, like, looking at clothes and colours and textures and everything. And this woman walked in and said, 
where's that from? And I said, oh, my company makes makes them. She went, wow, can you bring your collection into Vogue on Monday? And I was like, yeah, of course. But rang up Harriet and said, Harriet, we're going to take our collection to Vogue on Monday. And I was like, but we, but we haven't got one. <laughs> so literally, we didn't have a collection. That was on the Friday night. And we were like, okay, cool. So we still went out on Friday night. Didn't actually go home and panic. <laughs> still went out. But that weekend, it was an SOS, Mum, can you bring the sewing machine? And we literally made stuff all weekend out of just the random bits and bobs that you have in your sewing box since you were 10. <laughs> you know, we just sewed it all together and cut this leather, backed some leather, glued some leather, just invented stuff all weekend, <laughs> put it in a little suitcase, rocked down to Hanover Square on Monday thinking we were the bee's knees. Yeah. And, and it turned up, and I mean, random, we, I didn't even know who Mary Testino was. But it was a Mary Testino shoot. We met Lucinda Chambers. She loved it. And I guess the rest is history, as they say. But I mean, what it did, it, it filled us with this amazing sense of confidence and excitement mm. and ambition. And we were hungry then. We were hungry yeah. for more. And there was um, a girl at work, knew, had a friend who worked at Whistles. And she went, oh, I'll give you her number if you like. So I rang up Whistles um, and got a meeting there. And Whistles back then was really really fabulous actually I mean incredible it was selling Hussein Shalayan and 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 like obviously yeah Yeah. like those jeans with the big white seagull on the bub and it was really out there so I went along and they loved it met Lucille the the founder of Whistles and she loved it waved her arm said yes order order away they ordered like 200 wristbands and it was for a press event um so we went home made 200 wristbands delivered it like the following week and then the following week, it was in the Evening Standard because it was so quick because there was mm. no... We didn't have a backlog of orders or anything. Yes. We were literally going, you want 100 wristbands? We'll make them. We'll do it this morning. Yeah. And we weren't Incredible. having to, you know, manufacture abroad or anything like that. So we were really, really It was your agile. turning point, wasn't it? And then you went on to a fateful trip in New York where you discovered your iconic look, the laser-cut acrylic jewellery that you're now so famous for. Was it a light bulb moment? And can you tell us that story of, of how that came about? So we were just, when we first started, after the, after the wristbands and the leather, you know, we were making things with found objects. So we were making things with plectrums and dart flights, tape measures, whatever we could get our hands on. It was usually dead stock because that was, we were always interested in things you couldn't get anymore because they were, they were cool again. So, but when we went to New York, we went there to try and find other stockists that might sell Tati Divine. That's how we got a grant to go. So while we were there, we went on Canal Street and found Perspex Place, which was selling all things for the shop signs, basically. So we bought some Perspex pieces in the same way that we were using found objects, bought them back to London, stuck brooch backs and made them into necklaces and made them into jewellery, essentially. And they were really, really popular. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because when you look a couple of seasons back from that, or even just a season, we were making shapes out of hardboard. We were like photocopying, colour copying old like Technicolor books and sticking pictures onto hardboard and literally with a jigsaw piece of machinery, Harriet was cutting them out and making them into brooch bags. So we were really interested in, in shapes and mm. making jewellery that, that... They were the prototypes. They were like they the prototypes. Really? Yeah, kind of. We were both obsessed with like bright, colourful, shiny plastic jewellery that we would fish out of that, like old boxes in charity shops mm. and that was our look you know we had I mean we had sort of started looking into manufacturing things because everything was so dependent on 
how many things we could find, which got a bit tiresome. Like we, we had this amazing charm belt with these key rings that we'd found, but we only had one. We sold it to Brown's Focus. We were like, we, we need to work out how to manufacture. So Harriet actually got in touch with someone in China, look at moulding, but it was like going to cost thousands and it was going to manufacture thousands. And we we didn't want to make thousands of anything. It wasn't and we about weren't that. making ideas that were anywhere like anyone would. We still don't make ten. ideas <laughs> that are going to be manufactured in the thousand, you know, because it's like mm. that's what's that was what was mm. fun. That, is that was oh, we were allowed to. Yeah. We had this freedom. So if we stuck it on a bit of hardboard and I cut it out with a jigsaw, it meant that what we could make was a 16 mm. inch budgie mm. or, a, <laughs> or an eclair. Mm. And we didn't need mm. to worry about it being popular because we had no, had no responsibility. Yeah, yes. no responsibility yes. at all. <laughs> and so for anyone listening who isn't familiar with your jewellery, could you describe it and the design ethos behind the brand? Well, for us, it's really, I mean, we are now known for the laser cut acrylic jewellery because that is 99.9% of what, what we do. But the ethos really was always about making things that we wanted to wear, being original. We, we couldn't bear to look like anybody else. Harriet often says, like, when she was a teenager, like, she'd walk down the street and she'd be, like, upset if people didn't, like, harass her for looking weird. We were individuals. We always wanted a way to express who we were. So, I mean, at first, we were literally making things for us, for ourselves to wear. um, Because, firstly, we had no money, but it really felt like fashion was a bit boring out there. It was the late 90s. It It was very minimal. It was like, who wanted to wear a pashmina? Not me. Yeah, when we first did London Fashion Week, it was... All pashminas. We're we're in we're live in <laughs> the studio as you can hear now. Harriet's getting up. We're going to answer the phone, and um, we can even have this phone call live on the podcast. Hello, Daddy Divine. There you go. <laughs> can you call back up to half past ten? Thank you. Bye bye. See, we can never stop. When you're running an independent, (laughs) this is what it is. So you were talking about the pashminas in the 90s and that sort of time. I remember the It was West London, you know. It was the whole West London vibe. The cross was really fashionable. Tiny little bits of string that have some kind of, like, emotional (laughs) sensibility embedded in this tiny piece of string. Don't don't, don't crush my (laughs) dreams there. It wasn't us. It's not you. When we first did London Fashion Week, it was all pashminas and there was really no jewellery. There was Lara Boeing, who was quite an early pioneer of acrylic as well. But we rocked up and just threw a bag of stuff on the table of all these found objects that we'd made into jewellery. Weird weird bits of old like horse brasses and and then our display had like little mini plastic Eiffel Towers and Snoopies on there. It's just it's incredible that you you know we're we're talking in the year that you celebrate your 20th year and I'm just so thrilled to talk to two founders who still obviously are in love with their product but for so many favorites of yours I initially fell in love with your incredible trapeze artist necklace where the acrylic silhouettes of two trapeze artists swinging basically across your neck and I remember seeing that in Selfridges and was completely blown away or your genius dinosaur bones necklace Hmm. that was completely stunning and researching this podcast I now want one I'd never (laughs) seen anything like it and gosh I'd love the latest collaboration now you've done with the Crafts Council and the Borset Society collaboration which is so so good and I'll go on to ask you about your amazing collaborations but do you have an all-time favorite piece and I know 
you know, you can't pick between the children, can you? <laughs> it's but very hard. It's very hard. But let's say something that still is dear to you. Can it just have to be just one? It oh does, it, it, well, it just, <laughs> just something that you still just think. It doesn't have to be one, but one for this podcast. So you just think, wow, you know, so, so I love that. When we were um, photographing all the jewellery for the book for the exhibition, I've just felt so proud um, getting... We, we, basically tried to hone down from 6,000 pieces down to 100 pieces and just getting each of those 100 pieces out in front of the photographer and the photographer saying, what is that? And then me telling the story about that piece of jewellery and it was just like, I just felt so lucky every time I got one out of the bag that I'd ever got the opportunity to make it. And it was just like, I'm so glad that that thing exists. If that existed in the world and someone else had made that, I'd be so jealous. You know, it's wow. just like, yeah, yeah, it's just a piece and a piece answer. and a piece. It was just like, I love this. Like a, like an, there's like a pink column necklace I love. I love the banana necklace. It's just so, so simple, but so it's kind of perfect, I think, yeah. you know. Perfect for you I love, guys. Yeah. I love the trapeze and dinosaur as well. And the lobster. The, the lobster, when you wear it, when you walk or talk, the claws move just through the movement and the fluidity of the pieces I love the parakeet that you're wearing I've got that in about six colors and I probably wear that more than anything because it's what I love about it is it kind of nods to classic jewelry like it's a very jewelry jewelry piece of jewelry but it's it's still very tacky divine and it's the shape and the color and yeah I love it Gosh, oh, I could go on. And and for those listening, I am actually in their shop. And yes, I, I promised myself maybe one piece, but it is just, it's, yes, it's, my hands are sweaty already. Every week, there's an opportunity to have your very own ad break on this podcast. And it's all thanks to our partner, NatWest. NatWest's mission is to empower entrepreneurs. And so they're offering their very own ad break on this very podcast to any small business listening to help promote themselves for free. For your chance to win this incredible opportunity worth thousands and thousands of pounds, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreak at holly.co or find out more information on our website. This week's winner of the NatWest Independent Ad Break is Summer Lane Studio. Over to you. Hello, my name is Jennifer from Summer Lane Studios. We offer luxury recycled stationery and gifts. Growing up, I wanted to be David Attenborough or Jane Goodall off on a rainforest adventure. And so in 2007, I was ecstatic to get the opportunity to go and volunteer on a orangutan project in Sumatra, Indonesia, where I saw firsthand the impacts of unsustainable palm oil plantations, something that stayed with me and in 2014 I started my eco-friendly business, offering a 100% recycled elephant dung card where the dung comes from rescued or retired working elephants being cared for in Sri Lanka and the amazing wildflower seeded card that could be planted to recreate a mini British wildflower meadow to help our bees and butterflies. And now we have an amazing collaboration with the World Land Trust where some of your purchases are helping us replant trees in tropical Borneo. So find us at summerlanestudio.com or on Not In The High Street and help us save the planet, have some fun and inspire the next generation. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. 
We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. Something I wanted to touch on with your pieces is the sustainability and the use of plastic in your jewellery. It's a material you work in, always have, and yet the world is shifting where we almost now fear this plastic and we Mm. deem it to be the enemy and we're all striving to make purchases where plastic isn't used. Mm. And I have my own journey with it, running a cafe and how quickly, you know, suddenly the consumers have decided and, you know, forget what it takes to actually run a business and and be able to put these processes into your own company. You know, you it's now the the plastic, you know, police seem to be out there. One of the Holly and Co team actually saw you recently speak so eloquently about the use of plastic. And I'd love to hear your views on it. It's, it is a challenge right now because public perception is very, very strong. I mean, we see plastic as an incredible material and, you know, everything that we make is for life. We don't want it to be thrown away. In fact, we offer a repair service. Our products have a resale value. It's often resold on eBay for more than it was bought for. It's not intended to ever be thrown away. So, you know, if you take plastic as the crisis of plastic as it stands, you know, you've got the problem of the creation of it. You've got the problem of the fabrication of it and and the disposal. Now, we know everything that we do with it is, is safe and ethical. We run our own studio in Kent. You know, everything is is very, very tightly done. We know that it's never to be disposed of. So we are currently really looking into the processes around the creation of it. But there's very, very little, you know, there's work being done and there are some bioplastics being developed and we're working with people on that. But as it stands today, this material is, is, is what it is. I mean, plastic's an incredible, incredible material. If you think about... We'd all be dead drinking pipes out of pipes made of lead if we, if, <laughs> yeah. if we hadn't. There is, there is a place in the world for it. It's just, it's just not everywhere. It just shouldn't be cheap and throw away. It's like if it was treated like gold, then it would like be magical. You know, I love the idea of it being like gold because I love the idea... Because I love history, you know, and I love the idea that we can find out all these brilliant things about women in history because of jewellery or because so much textiles is disintegrates when it's buried but you can find out about their lives mm. by their jewellery that they're wearing or how they were buried and mm. their tools I'd kind of like the idea that in a few hundred years that someone will be like oh look at this person who's been buried with a banana necklace on <laughs> they must have lived in East London <laughs> what yeah great great answer because I think we need to just give small businesses a break actually we're talking about the you know plastic bags yes we're all for it aren't we get rid of the plastic get rid of the plastic straws but you and have to understand things, the but- lifestyle of an actual product you know because actually I think I don't know but you know like it's quite often that the paper bag will take more energy to use and be used less time than a plastic bag so it's all about like the actual lifespan of an object and its creation it's not just that demonizing something mm. you know it's, it's incredibly like- complicated i mean the other thing for us is that we use very little in the grand scheme of things we use yeah. very very little and our waste is so minimal that it, there's barely any waste it's you know it's mm. 
Yeah, it's an interesting well, one. Well, you know what? It's fascinating because for people listening, people thinking about small businesses that they consume from or people who are running their own businesses, having the confidence to say, actually, thank you very much. What we do is sustainable. Thank you. But we want our jewellery to be treated by gold. It's quite a lesson, isn't it? That yeah, we don't have totally. to just fall into a, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be dealing with this. Yeah. Actually, if this is your living yeah. and you don't ever want a necklace, you know, I'm. It, it's a modern day heirloom, isn't it? Yeah. Harry's lovely wife in the future is going to have this parrot necklace. <laughs> and she's going to be super, super happy. Yeah. But talking about this area, you recently created the tiger necklace in collaboration with WWF and it's made from recycled plastic. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about that then. So people are working ferociously hard in the background trying to develop, develop. recycled plastics and we found a company that had a had done this but with a very limited palette. We had about eight colours to work from mm-hmm. because, you know, the, uh, the palette that we work from is enormous. Harriet sits down and she's got maybe a thousand colours to work from. Wow. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe not, that's the dream. <laughs> but, you know, so suddenly we set ourselves this challenge. Let's try and make a collection out of this very limited palette. We've been in touch with WWF and felt very passionately about donating to th- their cause. It all seemed to fit together. And it's been it's been a beautiful partnership actually because it has raised money. It is recycled. We don't shout 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 about it because we don't want people to buy it just because it's recycled. But it's yes. a shift, and it's a shift in a really positive direction. And it's interesting what you said. You know, we can talk about people looking at this and looking at their materials, but the materials aren't ready available. No. You know, so we can talk about that we want this and we want that. They're not actually out there. No, so we need chemists, basically. We yeah. need scientists yes. to develop new products. Yes, absolutely. The other, the and other, the raw, yeah. the raw material needs to be developed for us to then consume as businesses. Yes, absolutely. And there's a real gap between. You know, there are people developing it, but it's not scalable yet it's not ready mm-hmm. to go to market it's not available to buy yet we need and, it to be safe and it's good use and yeah. safe to wear and what I found really interesting doing lots of research was that solar panels are made of acrylic wherever you might have glass actually it's acrylic so like there's vast important industries of the future rely on this material so it's just it goes on and on and on and it but goes on yeah and 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 the normal consumer isn't aware but very quick to maybe jump on that bandwagon and I, I love the viewpoint and I think it makes these you know the changes that you can make and when those materials will come about you'll be you'll be on it so going back to the early days of starting Tatty Divine you discovered this incredible new laser cut style that you were going to turn into jewellery what were the next steps of turning Tatting Divine from that part-time into full-time? Can you remember that shift of, okay, we're going to do it now. We're, we're... It was pretty quick, wasn't it? Yeah, I feel like absolutely. at Christmas we gave up the market. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it, was, it was all such a rapid progression, but I think maybe like a real milestone in knowing that we were going to do it, do it, do it, was when we were trying to get a studio and we just couldn't get a studio. We kept getting like gazumped, as it were. And so we were sort of sitting on the wall just outside here going, this is basically hopeless, what are we going to do? And so we thought... Oh, that shop's got a to let sign. Maybe we could get a shop. So we rang the sh- we rang the estate agent and said, "Oh, we're opposite this shop on Brick Lane. How much is it?" And they said about five pounds more than the studio rent we were looking at spending anyway. So we were like, "Should Let's we get a- should we do get a shop?" You know, at college we'd had all these amazing seminars about artists reappropriating spaces like City Racing Gallery or Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin having a shop on the Bethnal Green Road. We were like, "Well, we could do that." 
So, and it was a five-year lease, which did feel slightly daunting because, I mean, we'd only been at college for three years and maybe a year at foundation. So before that, I was sort of like almost a child living at home <laughs> with my parents. I'm like, yeah, we'll do this for five years. <laughs> I never, we were never, well, I don't know, maybe Harriet a bit more, but I, I was never able to see the future. It was always living for the day and we've always done that. I mean, obviously we've been good planners, but it's always been like, actually, no, let's just do this. This feels right now. Let's make this happen. But we certainly didn't write a business plan on to see whether or not we could afford a shop. No, you were sitting outside you know? the wall yeah. and the thing straight in front of you. The first time Tatty Devine sort of was down on paper was when we opened a bank account in September 99. And we did write a sort of a business plan to get the business account. And we basically, the business plan was we found some leather, cut it up, charged £10, and then that's that. And the, and the, the bank couldn't believe it because we yeah. got it. So, what, you get £10 for this? <laughs> Like, yeah. yes, Mr. Greyhead man yeah, exactly. who's giving us a bank account. That's right. You know, we we sort of know slightly what we're doing because we're the consumer yeah, as well. Exactly. You know, it's incredible. Tell me the name Tatty Divine. Where does that come from? Uh, so my name is Harriet Vine. So at college, people used to call me Divine. You'd be like Miss Divine. It was like in a sort of oh. funny kind of a way. And we quite liked that. And when we were trying to find another word, the word Tatty just came up because we both love really old tatty stuff there's that sense that if something's if you've got an old blanket or quilt and it's really tatty that's because no one's ever been able to throw it away because it's so loved and so beautiful so it's a sense that if yeah. something's tatty by default it's a it's love it's full of love yeah or an heirloom as we said yeah. something you've kept it's something you can't throw away yeah. and that's what we've, neither of us are very good at throwing anything away and it sounded like a lady's name which we liked because we didn't want it to be like Wolfenden and Vine, or yes, we wanted yes. it to, to sound sound a bit more um, so personal, and 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 also that goes on because I think it was at that time the name necklace, which really got you noticed, didn't you? Tatty Divine got noticed because you were shaping jewelry. You were the, almost probably the first personalized necklaces out there, were you? I don't know, but I'm thinking well, first that ones you might gold. Be. I mean, that yes. kind of Argos style necklace would been like popularized by Carrie Bradshaw, as it were. Yes. When we were at college, you know, but not in a bright, colorful, shiny plastic way. But that only became about because we had no money and we had loads of friends. So we we're like, what can we do about Christmas? I know, let's make, you know, let's make them all name necklaces because we've got this laser cutting facility around the corner now that we've found. So I drew all of our friends' name out in my sketchbook. That's in the exhibition, actually, and the book. Oh, you can see You can see that that first sketch of of names. And uh, then we drew, so then the girl at the laser cutter drew around them and we cut them out and made them into necklaces. So it was not a product. We didn't launch it as a product. (laughs) We just gave them to our friends. And then our friends' friends came in and said, you know that necklace you made for Susanna? Could you make one for me? We were like, well... Yeah, I suppose so. So literally, it grew like that. So two people came in, three people came in, four people came in. And literally, just so organically, and eventually, we did launch as a product, but not. It wasn't like a big plan to a make big plan it. to no. do it. It's amazing. We've pretty much sold, you know, hundred a week ever since. It's like it's just one of our best selling products. Just amazing. And I think it is, isn't it? It's that um, knowing something about personalization through not in the high street. It is that moment where it wasn't because we had a personalization tab on not in the high street. It was the fact that Sophie and I would get these printouts of the top 20 products. And I would just, you know, try and get some correlation going. And just after a while, I was noticing 
oh gosh, every other product has, has, has her name or something, you know, someone has interacted with that product or they've called the partner and actually asked for something, a bespoke. Yeah. And so you realise that it's still a very, very key part in purchasing is if you can actually interact with what you're buying. And now it needs to move on, doesn't it, you know, into what I'm about to talk to you about, which is like collaborations and how you can almost, it's that same personalization, isn't it? But in a different form. You have been so clever. The smartness in your collaborations from illustrators, designers, charities, musicians, artists, Rob Ryan, Snoopy, The Tate Gallery, Scarlett Curtis, WWF to Maid, Crafts Council is really one of my most favorite at the moment that you have now created to back the Fawcett Society, where you had a range of clever pieces, including Votes for Women placard, Engineer Your Future spanner, a smashing stereotypes hammer, which I wear, and a Courage Calls to Courage Everywhere necklace, where £3 per piece sold goes to support the Fawcett Society in their essential work campaigning for gender equality and women's rights. And I think this is so interesting, as not only are you using your business as a force for good, but you're collaborating with campaigners what has been one of your most um, not favorite collaborations but one that's made you really have to use both sides of the brain Ooh! so (laughs) when the collaboration is a good collaboration and it's natural and it works well it's easy that's the thing. It's okay, like because it you come it's together. It's like a natural fit. Yeah. In a way, I realised recently whilst we were doing curating the exhibition and writing the book, you know, our jewellery's always been about messages and ways for people to demonstrate what they believe in or who they are. And so these these recent collaborations with Fawcett Society and, you know, other, like our European collection, which actually isn't a collaboration but has a message, oh, yeah. there's a real sense that with with a partnership, with a collaboration, you've got two sides. You've got the, the creative side where you can genuinely make something that otherwise wouldn't exist. But you can also make something with a really powerful message mm. which people want to wear to communicate what they believe in. And so there's these two things which when they're together have become so powerful so powerful and that you've never shielded away from being political and and you recently as you were saying your recent capsule collection of wearable protest art transforming instantly recognizable motifs into the such as the european union flag and the eu passport as a piece of art jewelry which we saw worn didn't we by joe swinson and meg hillier in parliament Girl power. There you're creating jewellery with purpose and helping spread this message. And there they were. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's incredible. It slightly left me slightly like speechless, which is rare. Because it's not that we've gifted those items. It's that those women have chosen to wear the jewellery. We had Emily Thornbury wearing the stars um, at the Labour comp- conference. Yeah, Joe Swinson wearing the European necklace at the Liberal Democrat conference. And, you know, that... At the mo- one of the most politically historic moments. I mean, this this time will will be viewed mm-hmm. forever and ever as as you know. I, I see it as good and bad. I see it as a very simple um, problem of good and bad. But I feel that our joy has been worn by the good, and that that for me is it fills me with more hope than anything. 
And I feel kind of amazed and really proud that like that we're part of creating that visual imagery that's going mm. along with that. I love that idea that you know those photographs of those important women who are trying to do something, you know, will be in the future will be like that looking at a picture of Anne Boleyn wearing that <laughs> bee <laughs> necklace. You know, it's yeah. like mm. it's good. It'll, mm. it'll be like a visual milestone of this period of it's history. Such will an be honor. maybe something that we've created. Like maybe you know the sixties is defined by. Uh, Pete Blake, you know, that yeah. would be such I've a brilliant thing. I've got actually shivers, you, you saying that, because you, you, I read that the suffragettes used to wear jewellery in the suffragettes' colours, uh, emeralds, um, amethysts, diamonds or enamel, to signify their legions. Even Mappin and Webb and Selfridges created a collection back in 1908. Mm. And, you know, let's think about how we feel about that yeah. and the fact that now, as you said, we've got images of, you know, your jewellery there at this pinnacle point in our history um who would have thought who would have thought from the market stalls (laughs) here here you are and do you see this as your future doing more collaborations do you have any sort of dream collaborations and and some sometimes when people say something on this podcast it happens to come true yeah that's it if you know what you want and you ask yeah yeah. it often comes back is there something that you've dreamt about Oh, what that's actually happened? No, that you want to happen. In future. Yeah, and there's so many lovely collaborations. I mean, lots of the time, um, people come to us, you know, and that's amazing. And then, like, trying to pick out from the whole universe of people you'd ever want to make jewelry with is, it's just like, it's just so overwhelming. But there, mm-hmm. I guess there's there's a handful of people, isn't there? It'd be, be amazing to, to like get to do costume or character development with Wes Anderson for like a, for like a Jangelica Houston and Gwyneth Paltrow kind of thing. For okay, like, let's make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> wow. For like to work at the beginning of the film with the yeah. costume designers to like create part of, be yeah. part of the storyline, the jewellery would yes. be part of it. That would be... it's, it's really interesting because we've done 20 years and because we've gone through this process of cur- curating a touring exhibition with the Crafts Council, written a book, we've self-published the book, The Making of Tatty Divine, and it really feels like a bookend and mm. it feels like the next 20 years mm. are... I feel like we're back on the market stall yeah. and I feel like I have no idea what's going to happen next. Happen, but you're as excited. But I'm really excited because it feels like... Not closure, because we're going to keep doing what we're doing, but if we did want to change something up a bit, then we can. I think it's also showed us, you know, like that actually it's really important not to be frightened of change. You know, we had a big studio around the corner from here. We shut it down. It was a bit daunting, but actually it was brilliant. Or every every step mm. along the way, it's like change is a bit scary, but bloody hell, just go do it because it's but, great. And I love how you look at, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, there are people who, you know, you have people dreaming who are listening, people running their businesses. And then I know a lot of businesses, one decade, 15 years in, 20 years in, and actually, you know, they aren't in love with their business right now, or they just, you know, they do it, but they hate it. It because there is now pays the bills everything is loaded onto this business but they've fallen out of love with it and um, we not enough time to talk about it but you know one of the essential ingredients is still loving what you create the second you have this persona that you're creating yeah. for yeah. It, so I mean always the jewelry is just constantly changing and developing and you can really see that in the exhibition like I can't barely recognize the jewelry started with and the way that it progressed over 
the last 20 years has been kind of phenomenal sort of to an extent but also the way the business changes it's like you go this thing where you go steep learning curve and then it plateaus and that bit you know you you take a breath but then if you stayed there it'd be really boring we both would get a bit bored and then Um, so you you learn something else plateau yeah it's just this series of steps climbing but harriet and i are so in tune and I, i was saying recently we're like a little bit like train tracks we're always parallel and to the extent where in this summer we both we've actually both been doing some tv work Completely randomly, I've shot at the perfect show for me. Harriet shot the perfect show for her, where she's focusing on craft um, and the techniques around it. And I'm focusing on people making craft and helping them to sell it. And and who knows, that could be our next Mm. foray. And you just, it's very exciting when you just, um, you know. But it's nice how you've almost closed this chapter down. That's almost like, so for those who are listening, who are on that journey, you can say, okay, so it's like when Not on the High Street turned 10, I felt like, okay, so that's that decade. Mm. What's the next decade going to be? So you almost can launch yourself again, have a launch party for, you know, (laughs) day one of my next 10 years, isn't it? And it's a real nice way of looking looking at it rather than 20 years yeah, we've got to do yeah. 30 you're almost going what's no, the next just, 20 years it's just a journey you know we never meant there to be a z we started at a and we just went off at a tangent yeah you know when we first started we didn't know we were going to make jewelry or accessories it was like shall we be in a band shall we be photographers shall we be illustrators well let's do this for this six months maybe we'll do illustration in another six months time you it know it's just, just like this thing. sort of freedom essentially brilliant i wanted to touch on a, a horrible subject actually of copying lots and lots of people i know it's this thing isn't it that is it's so personal when it happens to you and yet you can feel very very overwhelmed and and alone it's happened to you you were copied quite openly by Claire's accessories and actually when researching it it's just ridiculous right I mean it is it's basically your jewellery with their tag on it yes, yes? yes. I mean it wasn't just a but made I've taken much poorly in- yeah but exactly <laughs> yeah. yes but it wasn't like oh I've just taken influence from it it was a direct direct copy yes. can you tell me just about that process and what happened and you know did it you was, have it was, to control it was, yourself it was marvelous <laughs> it was insane we didn't do any work for a week because we sat there and just watched twitter and like we were a really small business you know and all of a sudden we had an army you know because it, it wasn't just people who liked daddy divine or Claire's accessories it was people from pr agencies it was people from ip agencies it was lawyers it was marketing aid. everybody was watching this case unfold because it was really Really one of the first IP cases to fall open through social media. It's like, is anyone going to need a lawyer anymore? Let's watch this case to see if people need a lawyer anymore because <laughs> yes. the the people are just doing it for them, you know. And wow. there was people, and they and you know, they didn't handle it very well because they were Who taking didn't handle Claire's, Claire's didn't handle it very well because they were taking down comments off their social media, so they weren't letting it be a fair open conversation. Yes. So people were posting on their Facebook page. And then Claire's would take it down, but they were screen grabbing it before they could take it down and then posting the photograph of the screen grab of their comment on Facebook, on Twitter, just so they could show that it had been taken down. You know, it was just like, whoa. And what was the outcome? Well, we settled and we bought a laser cutter. So it was great. We got, we got to go. We got to go on telly. We were in every major newspaper. And I think it really, really, as you said, defined, you know, what... Uh, community and army behind a brand can do yeah absolutely it was it it was very powerful it was and and in the future do you feel more strengthened by that if this was to happen again in a way I think the internet has really challenged copyright because I think there's 
you know, young generations coming through that aren't, haven't necessarily been taught about it or about originality. And, you know, if it's on the internet, then it's open for all. You know, we, we have a lot of things which are copied. And, and I think um, what we did, though, somewhere along the lines, was create a handwriting that people don't even know that they're writing in sometimes. It's like we invented the kind of visual language of laser cut jewellery. And quite often, rather than invent, reinvent the wheel, as it were, people are just speaking in it without no, knowing they're even doing it. I often, th- I often think, because I remember we once wanted to make um, like a pair, a little pair of shoes as earrings. We wanted them to be Chanel shoes, wanted them to be black and white. And in essence, we were taking Chanel's copyright, but we weren't... We weren't passing off as Chanel. We were never saying these were actually Chanel shoes. We were just saying, we love Chanel. And I think there is an element of that as well. Like people are just like, oh, I love Tattoo Divine. I'm going to make my own version. And it isn't necessarily yeah, from a nasty... You take inspiration. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, we, 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 there's, there's a fine line. And in the case of Claire's, you know, there was a lot of laziness. People were just taking drawings to factories saying, make this because it's easy to do that. I think that's shut down a bit now. I feel like the high street's mm. a little bit better mm. at that. Mm. I mean, the high street, that's a whole other dis- conversation, yes, isn't yes. it? But, you know, there's a lot of challenges. I agree. I think now buyers are more cautious. Yeah. Certainly, I was listening to someone talk about Next and, the found, um, and how that's run. And actually, if they do find that buyers have directly gone and copied somebody they will absolutely take it off pay for their legal fees that is not something that they want to do and of course that's born out of they don't want the negative press but actually people are now starting at least to have a a rule about it and that they they don't want to be seen to copy small businesses also consumers are uh very very with it plus they you know the sense of individuality has actually become a thing so yes you want something that's unusual can I ask, um, came from a founding relationship with Sophie for Not on the High Street. I now work with my sister, my adopted sister, Gabby and Carrie, building Holly and Co. So I'm very aware I only build business with another person. How have you worked your relationship over the last 20 years? Our relationship was really quite sort of obvious right at the beginning you know if from even from our physical setups in my bedroom there was a cutting mat and all the ribbons and bits of leather and in Rosie's bedroom there was the computer and the fax machine you know yeah. it was a little black and white you know black and green computer <laughs> so right from the very beginning what was like I always made things and then Rosie would always be making stuff happen so she'd be like and that was the way it worked because if we did fashion week and I'd had to stand there and say you should buy this it's really great there's absolutely no way I could have done that because I'd made it it would have I could I was too close to it I could even if it'd been my idea but if Harriet had made it I'd be like look at this amazing thing and I I mean I just love selling stuff so I, I was in my dream job but um yeah it, it was a really really interesting dynamic where the aesthetic that we've created is this I described it recently like a Venn diagram but you know it is the overlap of our aesthetics and it is the overlap of our ideas which Harriet makes real and I really sell you know and it's a really interesting dynamic unique to both of you yeah Yeah. unique to Tati Divine and a lot of what makes incredible product is the personalities or the founders and the partnerships behind a product isn't it because without you both with those yings and yangs the two sides of the coin you know tatty divine wouldn't be tatty divine no absolutely because i've been making things down to my knees and i'd never have sold any (laughs) (laughs) well i i 
we're coming to the end of this interview and I know that you've got a team waiting to get into this bustling office. At the end of all my interviews, I use the analogy that running your own small business is like being on a crazy roller coaster. You'd be wearing your parrots and your parakeets and your lobster necklaces on this roller coaster. So you'd have to hold them down. (laughs) Tell me what you would say, and maybe you have the same answer or different, has been one of your biggest lows on this roller coaster. Oh, Lord. Um, Moving the studio was so hard. Like, literally, we had 10 years of stuff and we had to move it out and, like, packing it all up Mm. and throwing loads of it away. Well, not throwing it away. We gave loads and loads of stuff to London College of Fashion. But moving on. But moving on. Because, like, it's, like, so hard because Rosie and I are natural hoarders and having to move to downscale in size of space because we didn't need that much space physically. But it was just, like, having all the stuff wrenched out of me, thinking, I might need that in... I never will be I might I might need that and just the physicality of it it was like two or three weeks of like not being able to do normal work and having to just go through boxes of stuff going yes no no we don't need it no we don't need that either and just trying it was so it was overwhelming so it was a really that was a really tough time and it kind of um collided as well with with the realization that London was becoming so expensive that you know make people that were making stuff were being forced out of the city, business rates were going up, rents were going up. And we realised, you know, space had always allowed us to grow and we had this beautiful space and we just couldn't afford it anymore as as rents went up and as business rates went up. Um, And it was really... It was sad. Yeah, and loads of our friends were all moving out of the town at that time too. It was just mm. like one after the other, just like this was just what, disappearing. This was 2016, wasn't it? Mm. It's a hard, hard... Um, it's depressing. Yeah, it was it? depressing because... Yeah. You know, it space had always been. We'd always sort of managed to do amazing things with well, your spaces, yeah. whether it was the boiler room in Harriet's flat or whether it was, you know, like we don't do glamour. It's not like you know. It's like, no, but you're you creative. Like, so every nook and cranny, yeah. I can imagine, was a sacred little space that you could yeah, do something exactly. with, and almost signified in a way your journey. You were growing with your space, yeah. and so actually, there's something there, isn't yeah. there? And tell me about conversely the greatest high. You're right at the top. Lobsters flying in the wind. <laughs> what would what would you be your greatest? I think high? my greatest moment probably was standing in parliament square when we the statue of Millicent Fawcett was unveiled because we'd worked with the, the mayor's office with Gillian Waring to produce that Courage Calls necklace and it was the first time a woman had created a statue and it was the first time a statue of a woman had gone into parliament square and all of the entertainment, as it were, all of the people speaking and all the poets and all the everybody t- saying anything, except for Theresa May, which is good. Um, they were all wearing Tati Divine. <laughs> Every single person that got up and spoke at that microphone was it, it wearing. It felt something. like a monumental moment. It was really Gosh. powerful. Oh, I can only imagine. You must have just been pinching yourself mm, at that moment yeah, in yeah. time. But there's been so many points, you know, so many exciting things, and we always say, you know. Thank you, Roche Beaubois, which is the leather shop, which we found all the junk outside. Was it Roche Beaubois? Yeah. We did say that in South East London, like, you know, whenever we, so like, whenever we have a little drink, just me and Rosie, and we're like, thank you, Roche Beaubois. Thank you for that really expensive leather that we were just making these little bracelets on Roche Beaubois. I well, love it. Pass, I love it. Pass, I just do a little, almost like a little curtsy. Yeah. <laughs> 
And and uh, could you tell me someone that inspires you that possibly I might interview on this podcast? Well, actually, moving on from the statue, that happened because of an amazing woman called Caroline Cred Perez, who she just makes stuff happen. And she made that statue happen. She got a woman onto the five pound banknote. She's just written that book, Invisible Women, and which explores you know, the, the the gender gap and how everything in the world's designed for men. Um, she just notices things. She's just going for a run through Parliament Square and went, why isn't there a woman here? Yeah. You know, and just from going from that thought on a run to actually knowing that it's a completely massive uphill struggle to campaign for anything, but doing it anyway. She's a campaigner, but she's an entrepreneurial campaigner because she uses Love social that. media to do that. And she, I think she's very inspiring. Gosh, on the list... Thank you so much for your time today. And I know this episode is going to be really inspiring to makers out there, whatever age, um, young girls, if they're out there listening to this, that aspire to build a brand that is fun and creative as yours and to be as successful as yours. 20 years into business, your MBEs, it's utterly brilliant. And I'd love for so many more to follow in your footsteps and build a business ultimately doing what they love and looking at your faces right now you love what you do and that's all of us should aspire 20 years in to be hopefully in your shoes but before I go and do some shopping I feel like I need to somehow at some point talk to you about a shop independent campaign or something I'm all about people wearing what they believe in and I know obviously you are as well so I'd love to talk to you further about that but it is at that time at the podcast now where I hand over to both of you who have prepared a letter to their younger <laughs> selves. Who's going to go first? This was like doing therapy. <laughs> Who's well, going to go first? I don't, I, should I go first? I got it. You got it up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> Dear Rosie, it's 1987, you're 10 years old and you're looking out at the devastation of the great storm. Your parents have just sold the hotel you were brought up in, set up in the 50s by your granny, and there is an air of despair, with nothing left but a mountain of furniture, broken hearts and fallen trees. You have no idea what the future holds. Your future feels like a blank canvas and slightly terrifying. This is undoubtedly a low point for you, but I write from a happy and successful place, with nothing but positivity for what is to come. You loved the hotel, and being looked after by an extended family of people who worked there... This is something that you're actually going to go on unknowingly to replicate, surrounding yourself with a team of amazing individuals. Back then, Carol, the pastry chef, used to let you sell your friendship bracelets and scrunchies you made on her market stall. This is also something you're going to revisit in the future. The hotel had sprawling gardens and woodland, providing all the space a little girl needed to go off and daydream. And you've never stopped daydreaming, lying back, poised but patient, waiting for something to happen. You're an avid collector, and that will never change. In fact, your obsession with stuff will inform what you go on to do. You love collecting all things you find. Stones, shells, stamps, postcards, badges, dolls, fabrics, books. The lists go on, and the joy in collecting never diminishes. You just learn to become more selective, as the world becomes full of too much stuff, and with the invention of the internet, everything becomes commoditized. For you, it isn't necessarily what something is worth, but the feeling it gives, and the stories and ideas it evokes. You love making. Your granny has always taught you needlepoint, tapestry and painting. She taught you that you can make anything, including a business. You love visiting her in her bookshop, but you probably haven't seen it as a business, just as a way for her to keep busy, pay the bills, 
meet interesting people and sell the books she writes. Learn as much as you can from her, ask her questions, because she will always be such an important source of inspiration. In a few years, your father will become a business mentor at a local business centre. Make sure you ask him questions too, as he will not be with you for long, and learn what you can from him. In 30 years' time, you'll hear about a woman thanking him for his mentorship as she accepts her MBE for services to small business startups and women in business. She never forgot him for his kindness, open-mindedness and strength, and neither will you. You will fall in love with art and the theatre at school, spending all your hours in the art room and painting sets for the school plays. Your teacher will introduce you to the world of contemporary art. You'll see an installation of a piano hanging upside down by Rebecca Horn at Tate, and you will get a glimmer of what the future will hold. It will blow your mind. At art school, you're going to meet Harriet, who will become a big part of your life, and you will both leave art school with energy, ambition, determination and bursting with ideas. Those hours of daydream have not been a waste of time. It may drive your family mad, but it will be the making of you. Just make sure you always work hard and love what you do. Love from your future me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Harry and I carry on. (laughs) (laughs) How beautiful. My father is very part of my business at Notton High Street and I only thought the other day what I'd do without him. And so that really touched me. And uh, how lovely that he got recognised at that moment. How beautiful. It was. was, It really... yeah yeah it really made me realize how important he'd been in your in your upbringing in your subconscious and everything with your hotel and you brought up with entrepreneurs all around you weren't you oh right (laughs) (laughs) harriet (laughs) gulp of tea wipe the tears away (laughs) okay yeah can i still speak (laughs) i'm not sure Mine isn't uh, to any particular age person, but possibly sometime around when I was at college, I would imagine. So it's more just to my younger self. So it says, Dear younger self, you won't even believe what a ride you've got in store. No spoilers here, just some words of encouragement to keep doing what you're doing, keep learning, and most importantly, spend time making true friendships, as that what really makes the world go round. Who you know, not what you know, is actually true. But money makes the world go round is not what we're aiming for here. Knowing that trusting your heart and doing what you want to do is always the right thing to do. But do take chances and trust your instincts. I know you always work hard. But make time to stop, just sometimes. Magic things happen when you give yourself time. I know you won't do this, but do keep a diary. (laughs) Even a sentence a day, I would love to have a record of all the crazy things that had happened over the last 20 years. It's been a whirlwind, Daddy Divine. Oh, and on that note, keep everything. It will come in really handy for the retrospective. Making stuff and creativity is your natural space, but try to stay fit. Just because you don't fit into a sporty world, find your own way to exercise and make it fun and, and make time for it. Be even more outrageous. Dress up. Go even crazier on the outfits. Go for that mad makeup. Always dance like no one is watching. Find those interesting people. Go to clubs. Wear lipstick. Stay up late. Learn to sleep in. Invest in blackout blinds and earplugs. And take loads of pictures when you do. 
Don't worry about boys getting married. That's all boring. But do get pregnant because she's one of the best things you've ever made. I know you love a plan, but don't forget to live in the moment. Always embrace and invoke change. Stay on top of technology because there's this thing coming called the internet and it's really great and it will change the whole world as we know it. And lastly, always speak up. You have a lot to say and don't be frightened of asking questions and saying what you think. It does matter. Asking the universe for what you want always comes back to you in a good way. So know what you want and tell it. Hey. <laughs> How beautiful. How beautiful. And you know what? How beautiful to look at both of you um, from coming from founder relationships. I know the love that you must have for each other, the husband and wife of your business. And, and it's so evident. And it's just glorious, absolute glorious. And I wish you both nothing but the most phenomenal adventure with coloured hair amazing jewellery um for the rest of your your lives thank and you, thank Ollie. you so so much thank you i'm blessed thank oh, you what a wonderful monday morning <laughs> thanks nat west again for sponsoring this podcast it wouldn't exist without them and i know how many small businesses this podcast is actually helping. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering business owners. To make use of their free NatWest Business Hub, which is full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals, go to natwestbusinesshub.com. Also, have you heard of their incredible mission to help 400,000 more women start a business by 2025? To help female founders launch and scale their business, they have launched Back Her Business, a programme which helps women prepare their business idea for crowdfunding. Now, here's the best bit. Most of the funding will come from the crowd, where NatWest has teamed up with Crowdfunder. But the bank will provide a top-up in funding and will be offering up to 50% of an individual's fundraising target, capped at £5,000, for certain successful projects. Yes, you heard right. You could win the ability to have the amount you raised, if £5,000 or under, matched by NatWest. I wish I'd had this opportunity available when I launched Not on the High Street or even Holly & Co. Head to natwestbackerbusiness.co.uk to find out more. Also, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. My mission is to help everyone build a business doing what they love. I've seen how happy founding a business based on your passions can make you and I want everyone to have that fulfilment. Happiness is the new rich and using your business as a force for good is the new way of doing commerce. So let's create a nation of happiness happy entrepreneurs that are changing the world for the better. Can I ask you a question? Might you help me on this mission? If you like what you've listened to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Thanks so much. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come true when you are lying in your bed 
to come. 